little Modest Mouse for you on your alt rock station. Yes, I'm used to playing a lot of Modest Mouse on my radio station. Hi, everybody. Tony Mazur here with the Check Your Brain podcast. Thank you for subscribing if you're listening here on Patreon or if you're listening wherever you get your finer podcasts, whether it's um, iHeart or Apple or Google or Alexa or, you know, any, any place, even Podbean, my host site. So I appreciate you folks for listening and subscribing and taking part in everything I have. So uh, about a month ago, I had Tho Bishop on. He's from the Mises Institute and uh, Mises Wire. He's an editor over there. He's a proud Florida man, and he's uh, from the Redneck Riviera, which is the Panhandle area. And uh, we got into a great conversation talking about Russia and Ukraine, but I, I, I I enjoyed it so much. We talked almost two hours that I wanted to split it in two just because I thought the first one talking about what was going on in early late February, early March needed to be talked about that week. This time it's more about libertarian philosophy and the pathway to libertarianism from conservatism. And at the beginning, you'll hear me talk about my uh, path to libertarianism and more admittedly more of a paleo-libertarianism instead of large L libertarian. And that's because I just thought it was more of a lateral path, and it was the next logical path in the wake of the Ron Paul revolution. So we talk a little bit about that and uh, the difference between a paleo-libertarian and a paleo-conservative. What is paleo? Who is Pat Buchanan? Those are some of the things that I mentioned in here. And of course, we finally end with how libertarians responded in 2020 and into 2021 as well as 2022 when talking about the COVID-19 hysteria. So I hope you enjoy this part two of this podcast with Tho Bishop. So Tho, I got to ask you about your path to libertarianism because I think your path is similar to mine. And I want to just – it's introducing myself as – like I said, I'm turning 34 March 2nd, and which means that my high school years, 2002 to 2006, were completely during George W. Bush. And growing up as a Republican in a Republican household, uh, going to Catholic church every Sunday and going to Catholic school was that, uh, you know, Bill Clinton was the president and we didn't like Bill Clinton and we need a Republican in office and George Bush becomes president. So I don't know about all this stuff in the 90s. I've heard about Ross Perot. I've heard Pat Buchanan. I've heard a couple of these names, but didn't really look into it. Plus, didn't have the Internet until 2000 at my house. So we didn't know about I didn't know what a neoconservative was. I didn't know who what a neocon was. I, you know, oh, those are the same thing. It's just we knew that we're a Republican household. We voted for Bob Dole. We voted for Bush and we voted for the Bush, Bush's son. And as time went on, of course, after 9-11, things really changed. But I've had a couple of what we call the red pill moments in my life. Like there's not just one red pill. There was a couple where I'm like, wait a second. And I think I've I've had one in the last couple of years, which is why I discovered you and I discovered the Mises Institute and what you guys are doing and really digging into uh, Rothbard and Mises and Hoppe and Tom Woods and Gene Epstein and everybody and, and you and Dave Smith and a lot of other people. And it was it was really refreshing that there are people who are freedom fighters uh, that because I know a lot of conservatives, a lot of Republicans, mm, you know, were either warmongers, they were uh, telling people to wear masks and everything, and it just it, it just seemed like they weren't growing a spine. And I, I really was looking for that path to libertarianism, but it took a long time because it was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm right wing, I'm a conservative, I'm this and that. And then I just started realizing, like, God, 2008, you had John McCain, who was a sacrificial lamb. It was basically a lifetime achievement award. Hey, John, 
How about how about right now? We're going to nominate you, and you'll be you'll be our nominee for president for the Republicans. Oh, sure, that's fine. Gets his ass kicked. Then, you know, you have this Tea Party movement, and, and you know the Republicans take back uh, you know control in in Congress and everything, and it's reminiscent of 1994. Oh, it's Republican Revolution Part Two. And yet, who do they nominate in 2012? It's Mitt Romney, not Ron Paul, but Mitt Romney. Ron Paul, two times. You could have had him. Instead, you got the two of the biggest rhinos that you can even think of, probably by design here. So my pa- so that's where I really got in, like like you, like a lot of other people with Ron Paul in those days, and just saying there's a, there's a better way, and you're not going after it. And I, so, but one of the other things that I struggled with with libertarianism is that it just seemed to me, in some ways, that it felt like with the Republicans that there was a feeling of controlled opposition. We're nominating Bill Weld, where you know anyone from Gary Johnson to uh, Joe Jorgensen, and it just seemed to me there are so many other better candidates out there who can promote the the. Whether it's just a concept of freedom or freedom itself, and it just seemed to me that Republicans and the, the libertarians kind of dropped the ball in that way. However, listening to you on some podcasts and listening to you talk about talk about this in your writings is that the path to libertarianism from a conservative point of view seems – I don't want to say a lateral move, but it seems more logical and you see a lot of people who are more right-wing – jump to libertarianism as opposed to somebody who is a progressive that jumps to libertarianism in the Mises caucus. Seems like it's way more hoops for them to do that, so they almost go further left. Talk about your path, if it's similar to mine, and if you are seeing this when it comes to a lot of people with with Mises, because it just seemed to me that this seemed like it was the next logical step, because I could, I didn't really did not want to be in the party of Marco Rubio and of Jeb Bush. Yeah, well, uh, I, I grew up in a uh, Republican household. My my father and my mother both were, were uh, political consultants for for Republican campaigns, and uh, so I, I grew up kind of in the w- within all of this. Uh, li- you know, listening to Rush Limbaugh and the like. Um, you know, my my interest in in Austrian economics and and eventually libertarianism was really kind of a byproduct of you know, as part of the backlash of the Iraq War and then the financial crisis. Um, the Iraq War got to the point where I could, could no longer defend it. And that pushed me to kind of reevaluate things politically. That kind of led me to Ron Paul. Um, and then when the economy collapsed, you know, trying to figure out, okay, well, why did this happen? Um, led to diving down the rabbit hole um, of, of economic thought, which led me to the Mises Institute, um, where I was able, you know, which it's a great honor to be able to work for them now, since it was an organization that changed my life reading their stuff back in the 08, 09. Um, when it comes to, to libertarianism, I, I, I think people make libertarianism much bigger than it is. Because again, I, I think what libertarianism, libertarianism is at its core, again, is a, a, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's a thin philosophy in that it really is simply deals with the issue of the role the state should play in our lives. Um, and so that leads to libertarian, libertarian positions against, you know, the criminalization of substances, whether, whether it be, you know, alcohol prohibition or drugs or whatever. Um, it leads to, uh, you know, obviously anti-war, anti-spending, anti-welfare programs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of it is a critique of government and from the perspective that these government interventions have, con- you know, you know, you know, have costs um, on society. What it, so so it's, it's a great it's, it's a negative 
viewpoint, right? It, 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 mm-hmm. it's, it, it, it's a check on what we think government can accomplish. Um, and the problem is, is that that's not enough, right? You know, as, as human beings, we're not simply political actors. Society is not simply politics. And so the problem is, is that what under, so, so there, there's, there's larger questions that have to be answered. And based on your views on those things, you're going to have a very, you're going to have a fundamental different way view, viewpoint of the world, right? And so you have, you know, so, so you, you have cultural conservatives, for example, who, um, you know, believe in the importance of family and language and culture and common experience and common history, right? You know, it, it is, it's all about the growth of civil society. Um, you know, it, it is having common cultural values, which I think are important for establishing social trust, which itself is important for establishing, you know, order, you know, it, it, it's, it's, you know, you're, you're donating, you, you know, instead of, instead of, you don't need a high tax burden precisely because you, you and all your neighbors are donating to all these charitable organizations with the knowledge that it's going to go to help your fellow, your, your, your neighbors and things like that, people you have an emotional connection to. And, and really the way that I view this sort of libertarianism is that really it's, it's, it's almost like national liberal liberation libertarianism, because fundamentally that for all, what that worldview is, it's, it's not a rejection of hierarchy. It's not a re- rejection of authority, right? It's, it's, it's not a, you know, you know, screw the man sort of, of approach to things. It is a, a, a recognition that there are other institute organizations within society that can better serve us. There's other rules rather than simply that by fiat that can better guide us. And that, you know, so this sort of, sort of libertarianism is trying to reject the compulsion of, you know, a foreign capital, be it Washington, D.C. or something global. Um, you know, it, it, it prefers natural order to illegitimate, you know, leaders, mm-hmm. leadership, right? And that's, you know, I, I think that is a big problem. Um, that is the direct consequence of, you know, the the creation of massive administrative state. But then there's also a libertarian who views libertarianism as something much broader, broader than kind of a purely political view. They, they, they see libertarianism as, um, you know, they're excited at the cultivation of different sort of lifestyles, right? It, it, it's mainly built into tolerance. Um, it, it has often explicit disdain for religion, for nation, um, at the concept really of responsibilities and duties that you do not voluntarily take on, right? Uh, often it, it, there, there can be this sort of transhumanist vibe where, uh, you know, you can, you, you know, you, you, you can make yourself whatever you want to be that obviously, again, I think the most obvious uh, thing there is just the vivid, it's just the trans transgender issues. Um, but in, in general, right, the goal is to liberate mankind from these sort of conventions, these limiting conventions of old, you know, of that conservative order, right? And and so it is it is progressive, it is leftist, um, and you'll see people make common cause at times, you know, on some of these other things. You know, it's which, which can go in very weird directions. And I'm not I'm not you know I'm not even going to try to try to. You jump up and down and saying these people are, are wrong or whatever. It's just that that's not my viewpoint, right? And I think the mistake is that there's this tendency to want for libertarians to believe, golly gosh darn, our enemy is the state, which is true. And so if we simply link arms with our fellow libertarians, 
then this is going to be the best way for us to defend liberty. Mm, yeah. And of course it's not because it, does, it doesn't matter if it's you're on the left or on the right. And the libertarian point of view is the minority, right? And, 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 and so you, you take away, you, you put all this libertarians together, it's, it's still a minority of the population. And, and yet there's going to be this massive infighting because ultimately while these, these two groups may believe more or less on political views, they, they, they aren't a community because their views are so different. They're, they're, they're in result. They're, they're, they, they agree on what they dislike, but they don't agree on what they want that come, happens next, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that's why when I think it comes to strategy and things like that, um, and, and, I, and, and then you know, you, you've got a lot of libertarian you know, part of libertarians that say that you know, no politics is an advantage there, and you know, they'd rather just busy creating stuff. That's great too. But to me, I think where libertarians can really make the biggest impact is not by trying to unite together and creating a third party or something like that, but instead provide intellectual, uh, you know, libertarians are really good at analyzing economic issues, right? They're very good at providing a certain sort of skill set. And I think that what we've seen is that libertarian ideas have worked best within the confines of a larger political coalition. And so Ron Paul was able to be Ron Paul precisely because he was a Republican and he was able to get Republicans to vote for him. And they may not necessarily have agreed of every single issue that they had, but they recognized that his voice was properly thought out it was it was you know consistent and and he was going to be one voice amongst a large coalition Mm -hmm. to at least you know kind of force the republican party to consider these things more deeply um you know i think playing a role within a larger conversation a larger coalition i think that is the way for libertarian ideas to have far more success politically and i think again there's always this trap where we can be so you know, everyone thinks there's a tendency, particularly for people that have put a lot of thought process into their political views, right? The masses, for the most part, they don't think deeply about that. And that's fine. They, you know, in a, in a better world, they, they wouldn't need to, right? Don't, don't fault them for it. But like libertarians, they put a lot of thought into their thought process, which is how they became libertarian, you know, in the first place. And so they end up taking their viewpoint as, I think, they can, we, we can lack humility at times. Um, we, we can be overly self-assured in our, our own righteousness. And it can also lead us to a tendency of not wanting to deal with people that may disagree with us on things that we think are really important. And I think that always comes to our detriment when we talk about politics in particular, um, because politics is all about coalitions. Now, yeah. I think there's all sorts of ways in which you could be very consistent and not compromising and, and you know, try to create things where your ideology actually makes an impact in the world. Bitcoin, for example, was created by someone influenced by Austrian views on money and banking. And so he didn't need to fight a political coalition to, to, to put that in a place. He created something that allowed other people to organize themselves in ways that aligned with his ideological, ideological views, right? And that's having match of major political uh, uh, consequences in a variety of ways today. Um, that's that's very great. If you want to be in politics, so you you can't just be by yourself, yeah. right? You, you can't just stomp your feet and say, well, I'm right and you people are sheep and you know, you're know you stupid for not listening to me. You have to make yourself relevant and useful and trusted by people who don't necessarily agree with you. Yeah, and that's where and, a lot of that is. You kind of, you, you bring people along to libertarianism through their point of view. So if you're talking to a Republican audience like Ron Paul was, you bring them the concept of freedom and liberty through a Republican lens, and you might do that for a different audience for Democrats or whatever. So it's very interesting. And 
One of one of those members that uh, we've talked about just a little bit is uh, is Murray Rothbard, and I'm very fascinated by late Rothbard, where what you were hearing in the 80s and into the 1990s, and his alliance with Pat Buchanan in 1992, I thought was very fascinating because you're like, wow, this is Murray Rothbard, and somebody like Buchanan who, you know, he was on CNN, and Crossfire, and wrote all these books and Death of the West, and you go, okay, I could see that a little bit. And you started hearing this term called paleo, and you have paleo conservatives, paleo libertarians, and uh, I guess you consider yourself a paleo libertarian. Uh, explain to the audience exactly what it, what does paleo mean, and what are any key distinctions and differences between a paleo conservative and a paleo libertarian? Well, the, the whole label originally came about uh, on the conservative side with with the Pat Buchanan types, and it, it was it was a direct byproduct of kind of the end of the Cold War. Um, which destabilized a sort of three-pronged stool of the Republican Party, where that foreign policy plank, you know, which was so grounded in checking the Soviet Union, right? And so, like, you know, what, what does that look like in a post-Soviet world? And so you had the Pat Buchanan wing that wanted America to come back. They wanted to disband NATO, right? You know, they 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 thought that America, you know, the, the justification that was being used that America must be expansionist abroad in order to check Soviet influence was no longer true. And therefore we should take advantage of this newfound order to bring back our troops to kind of you know, take take advantage of our peace dividend and to focus on America first. Um, and so from that, um, and, and so they, they distinguish themselves as separate from the neocons as being paleocons, right? And so from that, then Murray Rothbard and Lou Rockwell, um, who was the founder of the Mises Institute, um, they had their own experiences from the libertarian side of things, recognizing that a lot of the people within the libertarian party, um, you know, sort of cultural differences that I, I just mentioned, that, you know, that you're looking around at LP conventions and you're surrounded by a bunch of freaks. You're, you're surrounded by people that you wouldn't want to live next door to. Mm -hmm. And that basically the ideas of liberty, you know, if, we're, if, if they're going to catch on and have political significance, we can't simply, you know, we, we, we shouldn't be limiting ourselves to the freaks. We should be limiting ourselves to uh, uh, normal people. And, yeah, you know, and particularly when you consider that it's normal people in this country that are the most ripped off by the standing order. You know, it's the middle class, not the rich that, that have, you know, that end up, you know, having to deal with the largest you know, tax burdens on themselves, the way that things are collected and all that sort of stuff, right? And so they, what they recognize is that libertarianism is not enough, and therefore it must be added with a cultural dynamic. And so paleo-libertarianism was basically grounding. You know, they, they didn't have to deal with what the conservatives were trying to do and figuring out the war position because they, they were always anti-war. So instead, what, what, they, what they became was pro-culture war. They, they were pro, we, we must revive that Judeo-Christian moral viewpoint and ground it within our defense of liberty. And that that's the best way of appealing to normal Americans. It's the best way of making our, our ideas potent. And that therefore having Pat Buchanan aligned with people like Ron Paul, we are now fighting the common war against the Washington administrative state, against the globalists, against all these sort of parties. You know, and, and that's that's one of the fun things that you read this stuff and you know, written in 91 and 92 and 93. And it's so relevant today because our enemies are the exact same people. Exact same. Yeah. Um, yeah. Know, that, that speech, right? that speech at the RNC that Pat Buchanan had is is relevant today as it as it was back 25, yeah. 30 years ago. Yeah. And so that that was that opportunity there, 
Um, and I, I think the same thing is, is playing out today. And, and that's why, you know, you know, the, the, the name it's the label itself, you know, I'll use whatever label, you know, I, I, I don't get too up in arms about, um, you know, the, the label itself, um, one way or another, but I, I do, th- what I think is interesting is that, you know, the, the intellectual divide on the right right now, is I think even more than the, the war issue, um, that's a little bit changed now, um, because Russia puts a whole nother thing, but you kind of had this dynamic where like, you know, the, 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 the war on terror had become very blase, blase, like, like it, it's, it's, it's no, no one was really defending it. You had very few like true, like war on terror defenders. Right. And so again, like that war issue kind of went away. And so you had this sort of, it was, it was easy to play lip service to, you know, a kind of a, a George Bush era Republican with, with a slightly different foreign policy, trying to take advantage of, so the ground, the, you know, trying to, trying to work their way within sort of the MAGA, uh, you know, Donald Trump wing of things, right? Um, I think more importantly within the right today, and I think that one's views on the Ukrainian situation, Ukraine-Russian situation tend to be correspond directly with this is uh, kind of the question of liberalism, right? And so that you, you have within the right, you know, so these conversations about post-liberalism, about the rejection of, of sort of liberalism. And and, and what's, what makes it a little awkward is that it's, it's even kind of getting liberal, even in, in, in very much sort of a, a classical liberal standpoint. Um, and, and I think that's those sort of conversations that are going on with the right are very important for libertarians to, to grapple with today. Um, and so like, that's why I, th- I think the equivalent of a paleo libertarian in the nineties would be like a post liberal libertarian in the 2020s. Mm. Um, because I, I think a lot of these cultural dynamics are exactly the same, right? You know, it, it is, it is defending tradition and Christianity and nationalism against, you know, secular globalism. And that, you know, and I think there's a lot to be said about the way that in light, you know, the, the liberal thought um, played a, you know, very much a role in creating this sort of secularist globalist order. And so again, it's just very interesting to see the ways that these battles keep going on. Um, and, you know, I, I think, again, while those cultural things and divides are very important, what's important as well is for libertarians to be able to come in here and, and engage as you know, recognizing that, that, that we actually do have the common end goals. And therefore, you know, here are the ways that our analysis of government institutions and economic structures can actually help satisfy the actual desires of conservatives rather than be hostile to them, right? Because if, 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 if everyone, you know, if, if you're, if conservatives think that, that all people that defend free markets are, you know, believe in open borders and, and, you know, desire to see a world, you know, organized by the most economically efficient lines in the world with no thought of, of history, like, you know, they're, they're obvious and they should be, they should, they should recognize that as a threat to their desired ends. But if instead we can highlight, Hey, look, you know, all the, a lot of the cultural decay and, and debauchery that we're seeing right now is a direct byproduct of the way that the Federal Reserve, for example, um, is able to print up money and then bestow it upon you know, certain institutions for their own benefit, big pharma, big tech, all these things that we like to rail about in the political sphere. You know, it's the Fed that fuels them and subsidizes them and protects them. And that, oh, yeah, 
you know, when you're dealing with an age of your era of low interest rates, right? You know, you're, you're dealing with rewarding, subsidizing and promoting reckless short-term decision-making at the expense of being responsible in the long run, which has its own sort of cultural problems, right? And so all of these things that conservatives fear going on in civilization, we fear the same things. And we can identify, we have our own story on what is causing these things. And I think that that's an important story. I think it's an important contribution. I also don't think it's the only thing there. I, I think that, that libertarians have to accept that there are things that we do not get right. We have, there are things that we're going to miss out on and be blind on. And, and you know, because the world is simply not that clear cut. And, and so that is where the value of these coalitions. And, and I think all of it must be underpinned by honest and sincere good faith discussions. And I think that I can have good faith discussions with, you know, even people on the right whose views I'm, you know, on some of these things I might have strong disagreements with. You can't have honest good faith conversations, right, with the left right now, um, with, with, with very, very few exceptions. And I think that's increasingly kind of where Western society has gone, where, you know, who can you have a sincere and honest good conversation with has become so polarized. Um, and so again, who ends up winning those sort of battles to, to create the cultural hegemony that defines that sort of uh, uh, era, you know, that, that Overton window where you can have these conversations on, that's going to be so important for where these nations end up going, mm -hmm. going forward. Um, but that is kind of where, you know, some of the history there of that, that 90s stuff. And again, I, I think it's so fascinating. And you, you read some of Rothbard in the 90s, um, which, which is also Rothbard very much politically more aligned to Mises than he was, I think, in some of his earlier parts of his career. Um, the relevance that I, I think continue to has uh, within current political circles is something that uh, smart libertarians should be able to, to take advantage of. Oh, yeah. I, I highly recommend a lot of people go check out uh, th that era of Rothbard. It's it's truly fascinating. And, you know, kind of talking about the the response and, you know, we talked about in the earlier part of the podcast about the libertarian response with, with Russia and Ukraine and, and how to respond to the East. And then you have China, of course, and then now you, then you have the China virus. Oh, wait, no, we're not allowed to say that. That's uh, anti-Asian and Asian, stop Asian hate hashtag. Um, and I, I just thought that, you know, the reason, so I really dug deep. I knew about the Mises Institute and everything before 2020, but I really went in, you know, listened to you and listened to Dave and Michael Malice and a lot of people who were, I, I think, on the right side of history in 2020. And I'm talking about not hindsight of, oh, hey, guys, these mandates are probably not going to be pretty good. I'm talking about March of 2020 when they were mm -hmm. scaring everybody with this propaganda, all the things that were, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, oh, there's body bags piling up in China and they're sealing people into their homes. And in Italy, you wouldn't believe what's happening. And of course, it's all it's all bull. It's all from, uh, you know, stock footage from several years earlier, which, of course, is happening now in Ukraine. It, you don't know what to believe. And there's a lot of for the people who claim that there's so much mis and disinformation out there. Yeah, they don't really care too much about actually fact-checking some of these things. So right. I thought libertarians and Republicans, and, and when I say libertarians, I mean large L, LP party libertarians dropped the ball in 2020 from March all the way to July of talking about how you know all these mandates and basically what you were hearing is you were seeing from the LP Twitter account, hey, you should probably wear a mask. It's probably a good idea not to gather. And by the way, black lives do matter. And when I saw that, I'm like, oh my God, you just, 
you just killed any momentum because there were a lot of people who were like me and like others who were going, you know, I really want to read up about Rothbard, or Rothbard and I want to read about Mises and I want to read about, you know, all these great thinkers. Yet this is the Libertarian Party that's telling me to wear a mask and, and it's just the complete cucking to what's going on right now. This is ridiculous. And I, I just I lost a lot of faith, but not in Mises, not in sects of the party. It's just I lost faith in the – and that's why I'm like this must be controlled opposition because this is ridiculous. I just thought the libertarians were not as vocal – the party, not as vocal as they should have been when it counts. And the same thing I saw in the last month or so in Canada. I didn't hear enough libertarians talking about the trucker convoy or the one that's happening in America, that they weren't going out and saying, yes, we absolutely support the Canadians and we support the truckers and we're against these mandates. If you want to get vaccinated, you want to wear a mask, go for it. But we're not, we are anti-mandate. And yet I didn't hear enough of that. And I just felt that the libertarian response to COVID was really not up to snuff, not up to par in my opinion, outside of, of course, Mises and maybe a couple other figures. But it just – it really saddened me that they were not as vocal in the early days. Now, it's so easy right now in 2020 as we're two years into it by going, oh, yeah, no, it's uh, – we shouldn't mask our children. We shouldn't be forcing uh, gene therapy on people. I'm like, yeah, that's nice. It would have been nicer if you said it two years ago when we all knew that this was going to happen. I I didn't I I I actually I I appreciated the libertarian response simply because I think it would have been a bad thing from a political perspective if the libertarian party had become the party of COVID resistance only because then it, COVID resistance would have been made more impotent. True. Um, Good point. And and because that's that's the issue is that like I don't I don't think that there's a scenario here where the libertarian party gets really, really good, you know, stands strongly for libertarian issues and therefore it becomes a force in the political sphere. Um, you know, cause America has codified, you know, in a variety of different ways within the structure of the government, a two party system. And so what I dislike seeing is good, talented, you know, competent libertarians try to go in and, and, and make the LP something when the structure of the government is built for that not to happen. And because, because then what you end up as a situation is where you know, the top, pro, you know, your, your number one focus isn't fighting for the ideas that you might sincerely care about. It necessarily has to become a fight over party structure and party reform. And maybe you can win that fight. You know, may, maybe you can change the structure and, and you do create a situation where it is more advantageous to run a third party and they have less of structural advantages when it comes to debates and et cetera, et cetera. Maybe you could do that. The problem is, is that you're spending so much capital and time getting that win before you can do anything else. Mm. Right. And so I thought it, what, what was encouraging was seeing during that period areas of the country where the Republican party became a sincere party of opposition. Now this is not true for Ohio um, with governor DeWine It is yeah. not true in many parts. 
you know, e even the, the great state of Texas. I mean, their governor Abbott was behind the ball on a lot of this stuff. Yeah. By the um, way, I want I want to make it known for people listening out there that Mike DeWine was the first governor to shut his state down. Right. A Republican. Right. This wasn't Gavin Newsom. This wasn't Cuomo. This was Republican Rhino, of course, but Republican Mike DeWine shut the state down from the Arnold Schwarzenegger Invitational, the bodybuilding fitness thing that they have in Columbus, and shut down the schools after that. And everybody fell in line because they were politically motivated here, too. It's an election year, and this is an opportunity to bludgeon your political opponents. And that's where, at that time, I kept looking for answers. I kept like, Am I the only person who thinks that this is completely insane right now, that we're just going to shut? Oh, well, spring break's coming up and we'll reconvene two weeks to flatten the curve. And here we and then we're now two years into it. Right. And the psychological it obviously the physical and the financial damage, but the psychological damage is just continued. Yeah. And I just I, I I can't believe it. Now, there's just so many times I can pat myself and I know you can pat yourself on the back by saying, hey, we were right about basically everything about this. But it's going to fall on deaf ears at some point. However, it is you know, when you talk about people who want to be on the right side of history, this is where the Mises Caucus and the Mises Institute were completely in the right from day one about this day one because they knew where this direction was going to go this authoritarian this tyranny we knew that hey we've read up on on empires that do something like this and they they don't use terrorism to scare the public because you can only scare a few people what you do is you create an invisible enemy to start scaring people and that's what happened is that you they use that to their advantage and just continued that and that's where you know some i was just looking for answers at that time almost two years ago and you say gosh thank god i discovered you guys thank god i discovered you guys when i did and was truly red-pilled and i know you've turned so many other people on with it too during this covid hysteria well and that's what uh, i appreciate that and yeah i mean it, it was incredible it's during 2020 i mean the institute we only ended up canceling one event um that we held even during that entire year um, it was our scholars event that came in March of 2020. Um, and the main reason we had to cancel that is just because most of the attendees are, are, uh, uh, scholar or, you know, professors and, and the colleges were pre you know, preventing them from going anywhere. Um, and so we, we try to do it. We, we, we tried to, to act during that year, uh, in accordance to the messages that we were promoting out there on terms of, you know, how you know, resisting uh you know this this very authoritarian approach to the virus and i, I also think that it's important though to, to recognize and have appreciation for you know what you know wh where were those leaders that actually stood up and made differences on the margins you know during that you know as it was happening and and obviously there, there's what we saw was that you know far more strength within uh, uh, you know, the, the Midwestern states, you know, a lot of that is a, a kind of a byproduct of being in a more sparse population, perhaps. Um, but, you know, you, you saw a certain type of individual, uh, sort, of, sort of type of community that were very, that was a, a very much more uh, independent of the sort of scare regime. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, as a Floridian, I'm, I'm very thankful for the leadership of, of Governor DeSantis, where we had, in about one month of you know semi semi lockdowns or that particularly strict um and then you know him uh and i think a big part of that came precisely because 
he trusted his own ability to properly digest uh, the arguments, not just, you know, not just economically and morally, but also medically and scientifically um, gave him the strength as an, as an executive to be far more aggressive in dealing with the public policy response um, than a lot of politicians were equipped to do mm-hmm. because the whole thing is that when you are in these positions of power, I mean, your, 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 your reflex is, you know, CYA, right. You know, you're, you're, you're going to your default position is going to be defaulting on whatever you know, the position of whatever the, the, the national health ministry, right. Says is the right idea. And it takes an incredible amount of courage to be in a position of that significance and, and push back against it. And because you had a few, areas that did that not only you know obviously DeSantis but you had uh, Christy Nome in South Dakota I mean even Sweden's uh, uh, response uh, uh, being so different than the rest of Europe um, you know those created very important con- you know, uh, uh, comparisons and once you saw that the results of this you know, just, just have having you know just being able to have these experiments play out, validating the, the the scientific end on top of all of the other moral and economic issues I, I you know I, I think we would be so much worse off right now in spite of you know you're seeing this aggressive incredible pivot um you know n- nothing like the cover of war to uh to, to do these sort oh, of it's things it's amazing isn't it um just but, like the great depression oh the great depression seemed to have gone away all we had to do is just send our boys overseas <laughs> it's just it Amazing. And, and by because, the way, I mean, it's, it's funny yeah. you mentioned DeSantis because uh, when I got married in 2020, and we still, Florida started opening up, and I was, I was panicking because I'm supposed to get married in June of 2020, and it's early May, and I start going on like Spirit Airlines, looking at flights to Jacksonville. I was seriously going to do this before my wedding. I was going to fly into Jacksonville, get my hair cut. Go to a gym, get a really good like five-hour workout, then fly home. I was willing to do that because I wanted to support Florida and what they were doing. And I, I'm not getting my own haircut. I'm not, I'm not cutting my own hair for my wedding. And luckily, Ohio did reopen, but not without another situation that was going on. This is where this is where COVID was over for I think a lot more people. Is that when they started bringing up public health people were coming out saying that racism was a bigger public health crisis than COVID. So it's okay to gather in groups of 40 and 50,000 to protest racism in black trans lives. Yet it was not okay to protest the closure of small businesses because it wasn't just so much that you wanted to go to Chili's to get a hamburger. It was, what about the people who work at Chili's? What about the people who are cutting your hair, or giving you your tattoos or, you know, and, you know, the liquor stores and the, the gyms and everything that were around. And you just saw people like Cuomo that said, well, it's not essential, so go get an essential job. And that was that that narcissism that you were kind of talking about earlier, where the elites were so confident in their beliefs and didn't realize that there was going to be any kind of pushback because they scared enough of the public. And luckily, there was enough people, at least on the right, who woke up and said, look, I was careful with COVID and I wore my mask because I didn't know what was going on. We're waiting for vaccines. But you're going to tell us that it's OK to protest for George Floyd in the streets of New York and Minneapolis and Cleveland and Los Angeles and anywhere 
uh, and and then go up to to Wisconsin for Jacob Blake and in the Kyle Rittenhouse situation. It's okay to do that, but you can't go protest at your state capitol because you want your businesses reopened. And it just and then you're calling people racists and Karens and everything. And it just it was unbelievable when you start looking back at that. And now the whitewashing and, and the the memory holing of society that's going on right now because today. I just saw this before we hit, we hit record, is that California, Oregon, and Washington are dropping not only their statewide mask mandates, but their school state mask mandates. Right. Gee, I wonder what happened. <laughs> wonder yeah. what changed. Could it have been the po- politics of COVID, or could it have been the science changed, yeah. of course? And that's why I think one of the things that is going to be you know, one of those very clear marks on whether we're making progress or not as a people is that there's any accountability. Uh, uh, Fauci should be jailed. Oh yeah, um, there are there are actors within this regime. I mean, yeah, Fau- Fauci, I think, is a particularly easy case because he's you know he repeatedly you know lied to Congress about you know uh, gain a function gain, gain a function research and all that sort of stuff. But people need to go to jail for this. P- people need to pay. There's accountability price for this, and 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 this is true across the board. I mean, we, we, we are living in a time where the consequence of abusing your position for personal wealth and, and, and you know, ideological, you know, castle building and, and all of this sort of you know, self-serving stuff, the consequence of it is wealth and fame and, and being pushed up the, the, the ladder and giving more power. You're right. You know, you know, the SEC, for example, I mean, you know, you have Bernie Madoff ripping off, you know, retirees left and right, doesn't get caught until his family, until his, his son turns them in, sons turn them in, um, you know, com- completely under the SEC's watch. They're, they're warned multiple times. They don't do a damn thing. And the response is the SEC gets more money, right? You fail, you rot, you win. And until that happens, I mean, there's, you know, you, you, you make these people put real skin in the game. And you show them that you know when you when you exploit our people, you're going to pay the price. There is everything else is lip service besides that. Okay, they get fired. Fine, they're going to go to a lobbying firm, whatever. If Fauci is canned as the head, whatever his position is, if Fauci's canned, next day he's going to sign a multi-million dollar book deal and do something else. Right? You know that's not good enough. They, they, they Fauci should die and rot in a prison. And and that needs to happen across the board. I mean, for 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 you know the the, the disasters of our foreign policies, the disasters of our of our, our health policies, right? I mean, you know the the, the food pyramids. I mean, the government has, has been able to get every single aspect that they've touched wrong, spectacularly wrong, and people have died as a direct result of this. And they're they get to act without any sort of accountability and until that changes and it, and it doesn't have to, you know, you, you know, you don't need to necessarily have, you know, giant, you know, a, a modern day Nuremberg trial where you're prosecuting yeah. every single member of the exact, you know, I don't have need, but, but you have to get someone, right. You, you have to get a few of them. You, you have to make an example that we are not going to allow this to go on. And yeah, and instead that, we have Pfizer's not going continuing. to Pfizer's not going to allow uh, anybody to know anything about what's right. going on at any of this data 
for what was it 50 years or 75 right. years i've heard a couple of figures and, and there's no accountability and, and that's why like again if 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 the republican party wants to wants to be what it needs to be if it wants to truly be an opposition party rather than a controlled opposition party then this is the sort of stuff it has to do it has to follow through on lock her up yeah and you know, and and that's that's the greatest shame. So if, if anyone you know had the ego to do it, it, you know, I was I was hoping that you know it would have been Trump in 2016. Obviously, that was not the case. Maybe Trump 2.0. Looks like he's going to run again. Maybe this time he's maybe this time it's personal. We'll, we'll see. Um, but there there is no solve. There there is no solving this larger political environment from like you know a, a, a you know some of these reforms. That's not going to solve stuff nearly as much as making some people pay for their misdeeds. Um, and, you know, that's that is where I, I hope now that we're seeing these pivots going on, hopefully this will be the next. This, this should be the rights pivot yes. to get serious about this sort of stuff. I agree. Uh, last thing I'll add. Well, before before we get the plugs and uh, where we can find more of your information, but uh, quick, uh, just a quick thing I wanted to ask because you're down in Florida and what DeSantis did. And we are a federalist society and it was great seeing like you said about him and Christine Nome and a couple other governors, uh, whereas you had others who were, you know, more power mad, uh, like Gretchen Whitmer and you know Cuomo and Gavin Newsom. Um, you know, the the age old question right now, it seems, in the last you know year and a half, two years, is that you know who would you rather run in twenty twenty is or twenty twenty four? Is it Trump again or is it DeSantis? And I kind of waver in that question because I look at it and say, I want. I, I the, like if you ask me today on February 28th, 2022, I want Trump running again. And the reason for that is I want certain states away. If we're talking about this national divorce and we're talking about whether it's a geographic divorce or an ideological divorce, that Florida has proven that it can be the new proving ground for ideas and ideals and and, and more welcoming to people who are. You know, just they, they want that, like we were talking about earlier about, um, you know, the paleo philosophy of, hey, and Judeo-Christian philosophy of going down to Florida and saying, like, look, I can't take it anymore I'm, where I'm living in Massachusetts and this and that. And I, and the way I see it, if you ask me now, I would want Trump to run again, whether he wins or not. I want DeSantis to be the governor of Florida as opposed mm-hmm. to the president because I'm afraid that if DeSantis runs and wins or he, say, say he loses – uh, for the presidency, that you're not going to have somebody who's been as good in Florida as Ron DeSantis has been. And that's my fear, that you're going to have an Andrew Gillum or you're going to have a Rick Scott or somebody who's not as um, not as up with it. Uh, or, uh, God, if, if you find a Jeb Bush type, that it's Florida's not going to be what it what DeSantis has helped make it the last four or five years. Yeah, and DeSantis was not supposed to win that race in 2018. It was supposed no. to be a man named Adam Putnam. Uh, who had spent his entire adult life running for governor and would have been, I don't think, any better than DeWine, um, which again, so that makes that primary just as important as beating Gillum in many ways. Um, and that, that was a direct byproduct of three Trump tweets that propelled him into winning with 20% of the vote um, when, again, literally everyone in Florida politics was uniformly behind Adam Putnam, with very, very few exceptions, one of them being Matt Gates. Um, when it comes to the 2024 question, I'm perfectly content with Trump wanting, running. Um, if, if he doesn't run, then, you know, I think DeSantis would obviously be the leader. The worst case scenario is the two running against each other. Yes. Um, that would be a disaster. It would fracture. DeSantis would, or Trump would be dirty um, against DeSantis because that's just what he's going to do. Um, and DeSantis is the one person with a record that could actually do some body damage, I think, to Trump. 
um, because I think ultimately DeSantis is a better leader. Um, and I don't think there's many other Republicans in the country that could really argue that, right? You know, I, 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 there's, there's not a lot of, you know, I, I think Trump, Trump's outcome is better than most DeSantis, one of the few exceptions there too. Um, more importantly though, and while I, I'm not trying to dismiss the importance of the presidency, I think there's a lot of stuff to be said there about staffing and appointing. And I do think the Trump circle got much better about this as they went on. I know, for example, they changed the director of personnel management, who was much, much better in 2020 after the first impeachment trial. And I think that the staffing of Trump 2.0 will be significantly better than it was in January of 2017. Um, it is perfectly fine and valid to say, golly, gosh, darn, why weren't you serious about this from the get go? But, you know, you can't change it. And ultimately, I mean, you had just had a, a, an issue there where, you know, you're, you're, when you deal with sort of these massive changes in political parties, the sort of people that have the resume that you're going to hire for executive officials are going to look like the previous leaders of the party. And that was what Trump was running. This is kind of just the consequence of, of having a, a de facto third party sort of campaign there in many ways. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, though, I think less, I think what's more important is putting someone like DeSantis in every red state governor's mansion. If, you, if we have a nation of red state DeSantis's um, that have that sort of courage, talent, conviction, uh, willing to stand athwart the feds uh, and say stop, I think that the I, I, I get a lot less concerned about the presidency. Um, does not does not mean they can't find all sorts of interesting ways to screw things up, but it becomes you know, but a, a national sort of push where you have that sort of strong leadership from Republican states and a much larger coalition you have some very interesting consequences when it comes to federal policy as well. Um, and then we are seeing a changing tide within the Republican Party, even at a federal level. There's a lot of very interesting, strong America first Trumpy style congressional candidates that I think are going to win their races and become kind of the de facto new leaders of the party. Uh, Anthony Sabatini is a guy from Florida I particularly am a fan of. Um, I'm a big fan of his, too. Well, I, I realize he's younger than me. I'm like, whoa. Well, hey, that it's good. It's good for the future. It's yeah, good for the yeah. future of us. And so, hopefully, maybe there you can get again. You know, that, that's that's where I want to see a Republican Congress. You know, throw Fauci in jail. I think there's some things that could be done in terms of undermining the power that the Fed has uh, coming into you know how we treat cryptocurrency and gold and things like that. I think there's all these sort of little reforms that can that 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 really serve to just change some of those power dynamics. And I think if you do those two things, if you can if you can hit some some key legislation that alters the power structure that the feds currently have um, and you combine it with strong state level governors, then, you know, who that president is becomes less and less important. But I would also say that, again, for all the people that, that you know, say they don't want Trump again in 2024 and I can I understand I it, it yeah. um, you know, but I, I, I disagree. One of the big advantages that comes with it that is unique to Trump is I think there's something to be said about someone uh, becoming president that can't run for a second term, right? You know, that, that gives you four years where you can kind of, you know, you, you don't Leave have your to legacy, worry about reelection. Yeah. I think that could be, again, I, unfortunately, Trump, I don't know if Trump has the personality to like, you know, be the, the garbage man, right? Which is kind of what you have to do in that sort of situation. So we'll see how that plays out. But in theory, in theory, I don't mind that. And then I, I think what you do, what, we, what you would have set up is, is the potential for, you know, if, if you can give me 12 years, um, you know, four of Trump 2.0 and eight of DeSantis, you know, that might give a, enough of a stretch where the right can really 
uh, have some 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 the stability uh, and inner energy needed to make some of those really big big structure changes. Um, you know, what, there's our own version of you know New Deal or Great Society or some of these massive changes within the government system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, ideally, you know, again, and, and the good thing too is that Ron's a young guy. He's got a young family. If if he holds for four years, being you know, he spends another four years being king of Florida. And then he's term limited out in 2026 and he could spend the next two years doing nothing but run for president. I think that is an ideal situation. Um, he hasn't asked my opinion on that yet, but that's makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah. um, the other side of it though, and, and you are correct, is that again, like the what, what concerns me is that in spite of some good names I mentioned, DeSantis and Gates and Sabatini, there is a concerningly thin bench in Florida of DeSantis style Republicans. There's not many other people. And I, I can't, I don't, I can't name of anyone else in Florida that outside of Mary, maybe Sabatini who would have done what the governor did in COVID. And that's, what's concerning. And so what needs to happen and what I'm trying to do and help is we got to, we got to build that bench, not only of Republican leadership, but of DeSantis yes. style leadership yeah. of, of Trump style leadership of America first style leadership. And, and so this is what I constantly tell people flush out the here. neocons. Yeah. The biggest threat to Florida, the biggest threat to your average Republican is not the Democratic Party. It is a weak Republican Party that refuses to act. And if the Republican Party gets serious about that, gets serious about being a true opposition party and starts and if a Republican Party can defend the interests of the Republican voters um, the same way that they have defended the, the interests of multinational corporations in the past, then perhaps we can actually be in a situation where we can make a severe dent in this illegitimate regime that we've been plagued in for far too long. And again, you know, maybe I'm just young and optimistic. I see reasons for optimism there. I see plenty of ways we can screw it up. And I don't discount that, but I think we've got a much stronger foundation now than we had in a very long time. And I look forward to see what the future brings. I agree. Uh, my, my laptop's about to die. So though, if you can just go like 30 seconds to a minute, just yeah. uh, talk, talk to us about what you do at Mises, like, uh, and where we can find your uh, work. Yeah, you, you can, well, you can find me at Twitter at though Bishop, T-H-O-B-I-S-H-O-P. Uh, Mises is at M-I-S-E-S.org. We've got a great, uh, email there you get your get your daily economic fix um, we don't spam you too much on that and then we've also got if you're interested in um, just kind of learning economic basics or you have a, a student uh you know, you, 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 you got, a, got a kid or something like that um that thinks that needs to learn some, some decent economics um we've got a, a, a nine-part video series i help uh, produce at begineconomics.com um, and so that's another way we're trying to help on the education, uh, economic education side of it, because again, economics properly taught uh, lets you understand exactly how we're being ripped off, uh, which is an important way of knowing how to stop it. 